0: If I were to ask you, how's your life going? Quick, what what comes to your mind? Whether you're thinking, well, my life's it's going pretty well, or my life right now is awful, or ah, there's, there's, I can't put my finger on it, but there, there's just something missing. Well, what's connected with your assessment when I say, how's your life going, and you you have that response. What's connected to that? What's the basis of your assessment? Maybe it's your current financial situation. Is it uh, emotional or relational atmosphere? Maybe you're on an upswing relationally or emotionally, or you're on a downturn, and those are determining your sense of how your life is going. But what if I were to ask similar question, which is really the same question, but we tend to texturize it out. Let me ask a second question. What if I were to ask you, how's your spiritual life going? How, How is your spiritual life going? If you'd say pretty well or not so well, what gauge do you use to evaluate your spiritual life? Now, most of us, when we have that question and Somebody ask it, maybe you're in your life group, say, hey, how's it going? How's your life going? How are things for you spiritually? We tend to uh, have a default within us to about three categories. There's probably more, but at least three categories. When you think about how's your spiritual life going, we tend to default to activities. What are those those things I'm doing that are kind of on that positive, the good stuff? Um, Performance is what that is. Second, we tend to, when we think about how's my spiritual life going, we tend to go to mountaintop moments. Am I in a mountaintop moment? A- am I in a sweet season or am I in a valley? Am I in a sour season? And then thirdly, often we think about how are we doing spiritually? What, we think, what no-no behaviors am I keeping myself from doing? In other words, abstinence. I'm You know, One is um, performance. How am I performing in the positive? Another is experience. What are my experiences right now? And do I have good experiences stacked up against the bad ones? Or the third one is really abstinence. What are you keeping yourself from doing? We tend to go to those three categories. Well, the passage we come to today in Colossians 2, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to get it out. We're going to be in Colossians 2. And Paul, in Colossians 2, warns the Colossians and us that those three areas, performance, are you doing the religious stuff, experience, are you on the mountaintop or not, and abstinence, are you staying away from the bad stuff, Paul's going to let us know that they may sound spiritual, but those are three shadows Those aren't really the substance of the life that is life to the full or life that is spiritual. Those are merely shadows, not the substance of the spiritual life of following Jesus Christ. Now, to use a boxing analogy, which is what you have here on the the title slide, we're going to look at shadow boxing. Paul is alerting us, he's ringing the bell that we are in a fight, whether we've realized it or not, for our spiritual lives. And Paul encourages the Colossians and us that he's in our corner. He's in our corner to show us how to shadow box, how to stay in the fight, and how to navigate, if you will, each round of religious counterfeits that come at us that threaten to wobble or to knock you and me out. Of the fight. So I want you to pick up with me in Colossians 2, Colossians 2, 16 to 23. We're going to read through the entire passage and then we'll go through and look round by round um, at how to shadow box and what we're up against. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Pick me up in verse 16. It'll be on the screen as well. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival. Or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you're living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Pray with me. Lord, as we go through this passage, we pray that you would enable it to go through us, that you would grant us spiritual courage to be attentive and then to be receptive, and then when we don't want to be receptive, that your spirit would give us the ability to again attend to what you are saying to us through your word. And Lord, this trips each one of us up. Each one of us has a tendency to, to want to justify ourselves, to want to make sure we are stacking up a life that matters and has value, that we want to um, be right before you. And Lord, I pray that the good news, that if we are in Christ, we've already been made right. We've already been made complete. But we are leaky people. That leaks out. So fill us with the truth of who the substance is, of spiritual life, your son Jesus, direct us, orient us, cause us to stand firm in the footing of the gospel, and then to be able to see through the counterfeits, see through these things that every one of us has a susceptibility toward. We need your help, so use your word to give us lenses to see, and your spirit would give it to us as food to nourish us for the fight as we walk out of this place pray this in the name of our head and our Savior Jesus Christ amen well um, I'm a child of the 80s you can put the next slide up there William I'm a child of the 80s and this is one of my favorite video games I don't know when it came out I think it was 80s it could have been early 90s really the 80s is 80 through about 94 just so you know that's because the 80s was such a good decade they couldn't squeeze it into 10 years but Punch-Out, some of you know it. I don't know if it was always Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, but eventually Mike Tyson got his name on there because we're all scared of him getting punched out. But this video game was awesome, and um, we would spend a lot of time as kids. Um, this is back when you all went to one guy's house who had the game, and you all played it. Um, and this game, yes, it's pixelated. This is how it was. That was like high def for us. Um, but each round, when you first started, you were lousy. I mean, you got punched out like immediately and it was over, it was pathetic. But eventually you learned, and eventually if your friend was nice, he'd say, now listen, the first guy that comes out, his signature move or his signature punch is this. So when you see, dut, 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 like you know he's about to back up, he's coming at you and he's gonna one, two and you're out. So when you see that, you got a guard or whatever. So they give you, what's the counter move? What's the counter punch? Why do I use that? (laughs) Well, that's really the picture that I want to use today when Paul talks about there are things that sound truthful and even have a little truth mixed in that sound um, like great stuff to be about and pursue because we'd like to be righteous or whatever. He's like, but those things are shadows. And I want you to know that the substance is in Jesus Christ. And there were false teachers, if you don't know, haven't been with us. Paul is writing to a small church in the town of Colossae. And there are those within the church who have infiltrated and have said, that's great that you've come to believe in Jesus. That's a good starting point. But you lack some other things so you can move from JV to varsity. So that you can um, be about doing these things that we do because we're kind of farther along the road. And you got to do these things, and then you got to avoid these things, but also these experiences we have, like, man, until you get there, like, you're not really in on the inside. In other words, the Colossians were stumbling a bit in the ring, if you will, by these shadowy punches, or punches from shadowy um, threats of, am I doing enough, have I experienced enough, and am I staying away from enough so that I'm in the right spot. And Paul says, this is his third passage. I mentioned this last week where you'll see the, the, the phrase no one or do not let anyone defraud you, um, delude you is what he said before. Take you captives, what he said last week. No one, no one, no one. And you remember last week I used a, a football coach saying no one comes into our house and pushes us around. Well, now we're in the boxing ring because that's where I'm putting us to learn to shadow box, to learn that those things are false, they sound true, but they can definitely intimidate and exhaust you. And if you, as you think about your spiritual life, even me asking you the question, you immediately feel like you lack, you don't have enough, um, or frankly, it's exhausting and unchallenging because that's not a real compelling vision for my life to just keep a bunch of rules, then there's good news from, from Paul today on what shadow boxing God calls us to. And it's gonna mean that we've gotta know what are these signature moves and punches coming at us so that we can stand in the ring, we can defend, we can dodge, we can counter punch. All right, now don't leave here and go punch anybody. That's not the, go- that's not the message today. <laughs> so Paul is in our corner and he's coaching us through three rounds of these dangerous punches from these false teachers. Um, first of all, in round one, we have what I, what I call the nitpickers. These are the legalists. These are the religious rule makers and um, keepers and making sure everybody else. They're the, the um, are you being good enough police. Some of you have known this your whole life in church. Some of this, you haven't even been in church, but you have certain people that are always kind of nitpicking at you. You're never quite doing enough. You're never quite on par. You're never really um, doing the things that you ought to do. Um, One of my friends um, had, he actually wrote an article for his church, uh, and he called it, um, Shoulding Myself to Death. Let me make sure I said that very clearly. Shoulding ourselves to death. And that's what's going on here. He said, I want you to watch out for the jabs of the nitpickers. This is in verses uh, 16 to 17. Again, really quick before we look at the legalism part, you need to know that this, uh, what Paul even calls it, not just false teaching, but the philosophy. He calls that in 2, 8 through uh, 15, we went through last week, that this, this thing that they were calling the philosophy, it's like, well, Jesus is great, but let's add on this and take away this. And they were, it's a mixture of, or it's what's uh, called syncretism. That's a fancy word um, for like your grandma who says, what do we have around the house? Let's make a stew and you just throw it all in. It's a mixed bag. It's a stew, if you will, of some Jewish legalism. And it was probably very pronounced there. Um, Some of these were Gentiles. They didn't know the Jewish stuff. And these Jews were telling them, you need to kind of come under the Jewish umbrella and do our Jewish stuff. And then you'll really start to count. It was also a pagan mysticism. They were very much into lots of gods and how do we keep the gods happy so that our crops come in and all that? And how do I have experiences where I know that I'm kind of in a good spot with God? And then there are the aesthetics. Aesthetics, excuse me, it's gonna be hard. I'm gonna keep saying aesthetics, like what's that look like? That's not it. It's aesthetics where you severely and harshly treat your body. You go without things when that's not necessarily what you're supposed to do, but hey, if I do that, then maybe I'll start to reach a new spiritual plane because my body is being pushed down, basically. So those are the the three. The first one is the legalist. And what were they obsessed over? They were obsessed over diets and days, diets and religious days. He says, therefore, in verse 16, let no one be your judge in regard to, and then he talks about food and drink, Uh, festivals, Sabbaths, and religious days. But I I want you to note, first of all, I've made it big for you here on the slide. Verse 16, therefore, so this, he says, I have a basis for why I'm telling you, don't let anyone or let no one be your judge in regard to, it's not, don't let anyone ever have discernment and or point out things that are, Opposed to God's word? That's not what he's saying. So don't take this verse and say, we should never judge anyone. That's not what it's saying. What he's saying is, don't let anyone ever judge you according to religious externals, conforming to, have you reached the bar yet? Have you, have you done enough? Are you doing all the stuff you're supposed to do? And particularly for now that Christ has come, the old covenant has been fulfilled in him perfectly, and he's brought a new covenant. We could never have the heart required to be in relationship with God, so he gave us a new heart. Therefore, St. Corinthians, he made us a new creation, not because we were good enough or merited it, but because of what Jesus has done. And even if you've been a believer a long time, you know this. We tend to slide back to, but how could I self-justify? How could I feel better about myself by what I am doing? Look at all I'm doing. And Christianity, this is the good news for anyone here. Christianity is the only religion in the world that's not about what you do. It's about what has been done. Therefore, look back up at verse 13. I really want to go through 8 through 15, but I'm just going to do 13 through 15. So, buddy, don't say verse 8, 9, 10. All right. Verse 13. He's saying when you and I were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh, don't get lost in all that. He's saying all of us were dead in our sins. He says he, God, made us alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our transgressions. All, every sin you ever committed or will commit. Transgress means I see a boundary and I'm like, I'm going to jump over it. He has... Uh, canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. When you owed a debt to someone, it was literally, it's a handwritten note that I will pay this. And then it would be put over um, the prisoner's cell or put on the files where it could always be uh, going back to and referred to and say, you haven't paid the debt. You haven't paid the debt. Jesus had one above his cross but it wasn't the crime it was king of the Jews and the Jews didn't want it up there but it was up there and what he did was took our sin and our, your your death what was uh, rightfully against us because of our sin and he died he took our sin on himself and he died in your place and mine so that it would be canceled out and it literally it's wiped away if you have a whiteboard and you just wipe it away in verse 15 Because of all that Jesus did when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, both those on the earth as well as the demonic, um, in the spiritual realm, the demonic rulers, Satan himself, at the cross, Jesus disarmed him. And then they are dragged through the streets in a a victory parade. This was a picture in Roman times. The conquering general would go uh, conquer the, the, the enemy and then drag them and all their folks and all their stuff through the street. And we said last week, they even tie the the metal stuff together loosely so it would clank and make a big noise. And one of the parades I mentioned last week was three days long. And why did they do that? Well, for one, to celebrate. And two, what it did was it brought an euangelion, or we get our word evangelical from, the good news of a victory that has been secured. And now the life of freedom we have. That's all in verse 16a, therefore. Based on the victory that has been won, you and I don't have to work for a victory. We don't have to work to get approval from God, acceptance from God. But being accepted because we're in Christ, we are free. We are free to live a life we never could live, and it's the life that you actually want and crave to live and long to live. But as long as we go after things that are shadows, we won't experience the life that is life to the full. Therefore, it's the most powerful word in this passage because it takes us back that our basis is not what we do, but that we are forgiven and free, so live like it. So he says, no one act to your judge in this way. Their signature punch, though, is to keep bringing up your performance. Are you doing enough? Are you doing the right things? Are you eating what you should and not eating what you shouldn't? Um, and he's and he's really talking to that Jewish legalism. They had all these feasts and festivals, nothing wrong with them, but they don't put you right with God. They don't give you spiritual brownie points with God, And including the food. Um, Jesus in Mark 7 is like, you guys are out to lunch. You think it's washing your hands and then eating this and donating this. It's not what goes in a person that makes them, that give, you know, gives them the condition of who they are. It's what comes out of them that it reveals the condition of the heart. And he says to all them, you're about the traditions of men. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me, and you're obsessed about the traditions of men. That's Jesus talking about food, which is what they're talking about. So we got Jesus on our, in our corner saying, don't get obsessed about that. You want to do the Daniel diet? Do it all day long. But don't hold it over me that I'm not righteous or any other one, keto, whatever. Um, diets. But then days, those, those feasts were important. They were part of God's design to, to have a distinctive people and to put him in his rightful place. And yet the sacrifices there were never good enough. We're not forgiven from the sacrifice of a bull. That's impotent in and of itself, but it's faith in the one who would forgive. They were only shadows of the one, that lamb that was slain at the the you know, the day of atonement or whatever, was a picture of the substance, Jesus, whom we're told is the Passover lamb in First Corinthians five, seven. So they were only a picture, a shadow. As you look on the wall, there's the shadow, you go to touch it, it's not real. It reflects. It points to. That's what the law did. That's what these, these um, diets and days were about. And the answer from Jesus is, you want to be about food? I'm the bread of life. You want to be about uh, sacrifice? You can't make enough sacrifices to get right with me. So I came and was the sacrifice for you. And he laid down his life for the sheep, not only as the shepherd, but as the ultimate Passover lamb. But this performance treadmill can jab every one of them. That's why I use jab, just jabs. And you have some people in your life that just kind of nitpick, that just kind of jab, and you just, you just see them and you're like, oh, I'm exhausted before you even get to me, right? And that happens especially in the church. Not because most of the time we're well-meaning, but we're also ill-informed. And we don't go back to the therefore that should really be our governor, really should be our fuel, and not so much, hey, you need to make sure you, you know, don't drink, smoke, or chew, and especially don't date girls who do. But that, that's where we default to, and that's why a lot of non-Christians look at our lives like, well, why would I be compelled to go for that? Your life is boring. In fact, most of you in here would, would admit, I actually, I think my life is boring, and often I'm, I'm feeling like, it's exhausting and wearying. And Paul's saying, you got to watch out for it. Now, there is a difference between obedience and legalism. So this isn't license, like, go live however you want. In Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that you've been set free. But then he says, but use your freedom to serve others, to live a life like Christ. And obedience would be conformity to God's standard, the word. In Romans 6.17, Paul talks about an obedience that's from the heart, not an obedience for applause, or to put myself in a a good standing. We can't do that, but an obedience from the heart. Legalism, on the opposite, is measuring spirituality by conforming to man-made rules, particularly when you're trying to kind of up your reputation or up your standing. That's legalism, this conformity to man-made rules. I'm, I'm not condoning this, but The Simpsons is brilliantly written. I don't watch it a lot. I haven't watched it in a long time. But there's one where Homer Simpson, who one of his neighbors, I think, is a pastor. And he says he he's, he'd been gone for the weekend. And he asked the neighbor, um, if you don't know Homer Simpson, he's, he's the epitome of, of worldliness, if you will, cluelessness, all the above. But he asked his neighbor, his Christian neighbor, hey, where have you been? He said, oh, I've been at Christian camp. We were learning to be more judgmental. The reason why that's funny is because that's what we experience. And we've often been those, in fact, I would say this, where is that camp? Because it seems like it's quite well attended by us. And Paul's saying, watch out. Their punch is to get you on that performance track, to guilt you, to shame you. Watch out being sucked into it where now you are being the one who is guilting and shaming others for what they're not quite cutting uh, or, or getting done. He says... That's shadow, not substance. Don't be shaped into that. And here's Romans 12, 1 and 2. We won't read 1, but he says, based on, it's a therefore, based on the mercies of God and all he's done for you and me. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We need our minds renewed again and again in the substance and quit being squeezed into the mold of the shadows. And some of you need to hear that today desperately because you you can barely breathe with the guilt and the shame that you walk through everyday life with. And God says, I came that you might have life and life to the full. Those are shadows. The substance is Christ. And the substance is the person and work of Christ. So why focus on shadows when he's all you need and he's been given to you? Last thing I'd say, is, this is like me. Having a picture of my wife day and i'm going on let's say a A trip across the pond, you know overseas and so i'm gonna be gone for a week or two So I take a picture with me or probably in my phone Take a picture with me and occasionally I just pull it out And 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 just look at that picture and then I then it's I return home to see her And I give her a quick hug and then I begin to be drawn back to the picture That's what this is like. That's what he's warning about why would, why would you go look at a picture? The real thing is right here with you. The real thing has been given to you. John Ortberg says, the pursuit of righteousness is always exhausting and it's always unchallenging because it seeks a distorted, shadowy goal. I would say that their signature punch of performance, legalism, especially the religious in pursuit of justifying myself, it can stagger every one of us. When you get staggered in the ring, you're in danger. You can stagger every one of us with a spiritual exhaustion from a fear of messing up or not measuring up. And it leads us to constant worry, weariness, burnout, or tapping out. Well, next, Paul's going to warn us about the mystics. Round two, he says, watch out for the bad calls. Beware the bad calls of the mystics. In the picture there, there's a referee holding up one person's hand that they won and the other person didn't. In my mind, the one who's not having his hand held got cheated. That's my my picture there. But he says, beware of the bad calls of the mystics. Why do I say that? Well, let's look at verses 18 and 19. He says, let no one, there it is again, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he's seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. The reason why I say beware of the bad calls is because when he says, let no one keep defrauding you, and notice it's ongoing, um, the, the word defraud there of your prize is of an umpire, of someone who would be watching an athletic contest and say, nope, you're disqualified you know, you can't, you can't actually wrestle because you weighed in, you didn't lose enough weight in to be in that category. Or you cut, took a shortcut in the marathon, you're disqualified. I just want you to know, in this language, he's not talking about, he's not referring to, are you in or out? Have you been saved or not? He's actually looking at, based on the life you've been given in Christ, how have you lived it so that you might be rewarded? And he says, as long as you let these guys not only jab you, but, but keep umpiring you, keep holding over you. Keeps, this is really intimidation. The spiritual intimidation of them being superior and just kind of flaunting it, though they talk about self abasement which the word literally there is just where we get humility. But this is the negative side where it's a false and phony humility. It's the appearance of being, oh, I'm just not. But really, I'm doing this to lord it over you, to rule over you, to umpire you. And our focus then starts to being like, well, do I measure up to them? This is just like when you're on social media and you feel worse when you leave. You're like, oh, look at their vacation. Oh, look at their promotion. It's the same thing. He's saying in, this, in this, your relationship with the Lord and your spiritual life, there can be those, beware of them, who are constantly the umpire. You're constantly taking your eyes off of the one who is the substance, and because of that, taking our eyes off of him, well now we're about things that are and for them it's about experience have you had have you had a mountaintop experience? Have you done this? oh, you haven't been baptized in this way? Oh, you haven't fill in the blank you haven't had this religious experience, and that begins to umpire you that and and if if you played baseball, basketball, any of those, you're constantly, particularly if you know they call it tight in basketball, you're like, I can't touch can't touch anybody. I'll get a foul called. That now you're not playing loose and free. Now you're playing like this. He's saying, Beware of that. They're gonna defraud you of your prize because your eyes are gonna be off of that. And then when you get to that day, when Jesus evaluates, what do you do with your life? You're you're not in jeopardy of not being with him forever. He's saying, I want to reward you generously for how you stewarded the life and relationships and opportunities and gifts I gave you. But if we take our eyes and put them on the shadow, not the substance, we will forfeit that prize. Notice they're so humble and they worship angels, this false humility. And part of this is um, the false teaching there was, well, Jesus couldn't be God because God can't have anything to do with us sinners. So kind of like Um, Rays or emanations down like there's god and then there's sort of like three-quarters god and then there's half god and then And so we're also not worthy. This is the self abasement part We're not worthy to talk or meet directly with god. We're not worthy to be in direct relationship with him So we're going to channel through angels And you think that's as kooky as it gets Let me tell you it's as real as it gets because i've actually met someone On a plane a few years back. It was one of those early mornings Flying, can't remember where I was flying back from, and I thought, awesome. There's almost nobody in this flight. I'm gonna take this whole row. I'm gonna sleep. It's gonna be awesome. But I was like, you know what? I'm I'm gonna read the Bible. And honestly, I probably was reading more because it puts you to sleep if you're just kind of reading. I'm just trying to be honest here. So I'm in the row, have my Bible out. There's nobody within three, four rows. In Catherine, I still remember her name. The flight attendant goes. She walks by and she stops and she looks. And in my mind, I'm like, oh great. I'm not gonna tell her my pastor, I'm not gonna, you know, whatever. Um, and she goes, Oh, you must be very spiritual. And I was like, Well, I mean, I, you know, I, if by that you mean, you know, just in a relationship with God, yes, I I you know I, I am a believer in Jesus Christ and whatever. And she goes, Oh, I'm a very spiritual person too. And she goes, I believe in Jesus. I was like, Oh, that's that's great. And and again, now at this point I'm like, okay, God, you're like, My appointment for you is not NAP. It's Catherine. I understand. And I'm trying to uh, be available. And anyway, she goes, uh, so started down the road. I know about Jesus and this and that. And then all of a sudden went, and she said, yeah, like when I get back, you know, one of the things that I do is in my apartment, I have um, all these angels, and I have different angels for different parts of my life, and so I have them strategically around my apartment. And I'm like, I'm not napping now, <laughs> right? But I say that because we think, oh, that's kooky. No, no, she was well intentioned, but she was deceived. And what Paul is saying is, I don't want you to be deceived by. These people putting these spiritual experiences and talking about worship of angels, which sounds really spiritual. When really, he he would say, you know, Jesus is the substance. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2. We don't need angels. In fact, angels will serve us. And also, you think of the apostle John in Revelation 19. He's in heaven. He's been given this... um, incredible experience to, to, to have this vision of heaven and the marriage supper of the lamb and there's angels there guiding him and he's hearing the applause and the, the worship and it's glorious and he falls down on his knees before the angel in Revelation 19 it says, then I fell at his feet the angel to worship him but he said, do not do that I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Paul's saying, beware of those who get caught up in that and don't get caught up in that you need some some intermediary, like an angel. Or you fill in the blank with some of these other things. They take their stands on visions inflated without cause. Taking their stands on visions is like an initiate in one of the pagan religions. They're like, hey, now I've kind of made it So now you kind of need to hear about my experience. You need to have my same experiences. And he says, they sound like they're humble, but they're actually puffing up their ego. And the picture there is of bellows. We don't use these much. The big accordion thing, and then it blows onto the flames and makes the fire bigger. Paul's saying, we got to watch out. The fire of that false teaching is going to get bigger and bigger if we keep being spiritually intimidated and going That route. He says, I want you to be able to stand. In fact, their main issue, he says, these folks that are spiritual intimidators, that are mystics, is that they don't hold fast to the head. So, what are we to do? We are to hold fast to the head because he's the substance and he's the real source of growth. Growth comes from God, not angels or visions. The sirens in Greek mythology would call sailors into themselves, and the way they got them there was it was beautiful. And song only would end up destroying them. And Paul's saying, "That's I don't want you to get sucked into this whole. You got to have this experience. Oh, you gotta, you gotta really try this, or you're not really getting there." And Paul, and Paul says, "No, the only growth into the life that is life to the full is in Jesus." John four, uh, fifteen, four and five that we're to abide in Him, and then there that's only the only way that fruit will come, a fruitful life flourishing, and, and Doug referenced it during worship, the end of verse 5 in John 15 is, apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, you can do what? Apart from him, you can do what? My question is, do you allow others to intimidate you and umpire your spiritual life according to their opinions and their experiences? You're in a dangerous place. You're in a no-win place, and it's an intimidating place. My other question related to that is, do you keep score of others according to your own subjective standards? One of the most um, vulnerable times we are to temptation is when you go have a great experience. You go on a retreat and, and you come back. Let me, let me tell you, you're most, um, and I'm most vulnerable to temptation to sin. You pick your flavor. But we're also most vulnerable to to then begin to assume a position of like, well, why don't, y'all have your, why don't you have your life together like I have mine together? Is that you? Paul says, beware of those who want to umpire your spiritual life based on experiences that you have or haven't had. Beware of being a spiritual experience junkie because it intimidates, it freezes, it promotes self and demotes Christ. So he coaches us to watch out for the nitpickers, the legalists, beware of the bad calls of the mystics, not being intimidated by self-promoting, Christ-demoting, spiritual experience junkies, but finally to avoid the rabbit punches as we shadow box of a third group called the aesthetics. I even put in my notes wrong, not aesthetics, ascetics. It just basically means you're going to treat yourself, your physical body harshly. You're going you're to um, go through hard, hard things really to go, I want the spiritual to el- get elevated by, just pushing down the body, devaluing the body. And he says, avoid that. Uh, verse 20 through 23 says, if you have died with Christ, and literally it should be translated since you have died with Christ, what we just read in 13 to 15, because you are in Christ, what he's done since that's the case. You've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Those are all going to uh destined to perish with use because they're about uh, the commandments of teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, self-abasement, and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You know this. You can... You can, uh, even for spiritual purposes, fast. This is not saying don't fast. You can do it for spiritual purposes and yet still go. I find my mind not giving attention to God, which is why I went in this fast in the first place. And I want to go down the road of, uh, of a, a really illicit thought life. I want to go down the road of revenge towards somebody that's, what's happening It's 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 coming out who who we are He's saying you can do all this hard stuff to your body It's not going to be what Gets rid of The sinful nature fleshly indulgence that wants to come Uh, Two things i'd say here. He's saying don't get caught in the corner. Keep moving These people who want to push you in that way (laughs) And then basically these blows to the body are getting you nowhere. They're of no value Literally, they are empty these things are uh, prohibited by them. They perish with normal use. The laws are man-made. They're of human origin, and they don't solve the issue of our fleshly desires. Our students, I know, they went through this when they were going, they're going through Colossians as well. Um, But how do you spot a counterfeit, students? How do they train the people to spot counterfeits? Anybody remember? You don't have to say it out loud. Don't worry. They don't train them by showing them all the counterfeits on the market. They can't keep up with that. They show them the original, and they have them focus on the original, focus on the original, focus on the original. So that when one comes up, and it's got an extra leaf on the right corner of where there are these little leaves you ever noticed, of whatever denomination it is, oh, I mean, it's like glaring to them. Paul's saying, I want you to be so steeped in, so rooted and renewed in the one who's the substance, Jesus, in whom all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. You have everything you need. So I want you to be so steeped in that and steep yourself again and again and again and again. Keep coming back to the corner and getting some water to get back out there to have firm footing in who you are in him so that you can see through these counterfeits. Jesus is the substance. These other things are shadows. Now, to conclude, we've said that, and Brian mentioned it with uh, going through the Lost Call series, we don't want to be a church that just does church. It's not a real compelling uh, vision for a church of, let's all go to all the church things. We're not saying, we want you to. They're, they're intentional. We actually do less than a lot of churches probably. Sometimes that's not because we don't want to do more. It's manpower or whatever. But it's, we try to intentionally do what we do. Not just hey, go to this really deep thing on Revelation. It's also our women did a cookie night and had fellowship and did, did just fun stuff, but it's so that there can be a weaving of relationships. But what we've said is this year particularly, we want to nudge every one of us, every ABCer to be personally involved in disciple making. Meaning if I need to grow in this, if I'm very vulnerable, if I've been punched and I'm, I need somebody in my corner, I need to seek out somebody to help me grow along. And for others of us, it's, well, I'm growing, but I know I can see I'm susceptible to some things, but I need to get some other folks um, with me to encourage one another. And then I need to be helping folks that I know don't know Christ. And what we would say is, every one of us has that from the Lord. This isn't our assignment. This is from him. We're all to go and make disciples, including, and the first step is sharing with those who don't know him, to give them the opportunity to trust him. And so we said two questions we wanted to ask you. What's your story? What's your story of coming to Christ? What's your story right now with him? And don't default to performance, experience, and abstinence. Unless it's, well, I was on the performance track, and he's really confronted me, and he's brought me to a place of rest. Sometimes I still go back to that treadmill. And then what's your next step? What's your next step? And I just want to suggest a few um, in, in a moment, the punch, counterpunch kind of idea to finish our boxing analogy for some next steps maybe to consider today. But I first want to talk, if, you, if you're not sure about what does this mean to even have a relationship with Jesus, if you've thought it was about, yeah, I kind of need to get my act together, this is great news today. It's great news if you've never trusted him personally as your Savior. This is the good news of the gospel. It's not about performance. It's not about ec- uh, ecstatic experiences. It's not about making sure you keep, you know, you do less bad stuff and more good stuff. He doesn't operate on that scorecard. Every one of us fails when it comes to that. But he who fulfilled it completely became that sacrifice lamb, taking my place and yours. The shadow was in the Old Testament. But it pointed to, which is why John the Baptist in John 1, when Jesus is walking by, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you're here and you don't know him, there's a good chance that even as we talk about this, that you probably have felt like your life isn't enough. You're not doing enough. The good news is you can't do enough. The good news is what has been done for you and me. And you simply have to believe. John six forty. He says, again, beholding him. He says, for this is the will of my father. Everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. You can have hope that if you trust in him, you are secured, you are his. And now you live not to get accepted, but based on the acceptance and being clothed in Jesus. You now can live a life of freedom and joy and intimacy with God. But for us who are here, who are also uh, believers and find ourselves, you know, wobbling at times, I just want to go back through really quick. No one jabbing and judging you. These are punches and counterpunches. No one judging and jabbing you with shadowy standards. Beware, watch out for the performance track, especially in pursuit of self justifying. This punch can stagger you and make you spiritually exhausted. You'll fear messing up or not measuring up. And that's a life of worry, weariness, burnout, and tapping out. The counterpunch, the answer to legalism, is that the spiritual substance is Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds like a Sunday school answer. But here here what we've said is the sub-theme of Colossians. You have been rooted. Keep deepening your roots in him. And keep seeking him renewing you in him. He is enough. He is Sufficient. Second, no one defrauding you by delighting in self-inflating self experiences that are detached from the head. He's the source of nourishment and growth. Again, their signature punch, have you had this experience? A proud spiritual experience junkie intimidates, freezes others, promotes self, and demotes Christ. And that can that can stagger us. can be spiritually intimidated and feel like, man, I just, I haven't, really lived. I I don't know that life. The counterpunch to that mysticism is, again, our spiritual union with Christ, our head. We only grow when the growth comes from God. Lastly, no one in re-enslaving you to submit to empty, valueless, man-made regulations and scorecards. Just hear Paul's question. You've already been made complete in him. Why submit yourself to those harsh and hollow practices of abstinence. They don't get you anywhere. They are valueless. The counterpunch is our position in Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Since you have died with him, not if, since you have died with him, this is not your home. You don't have to prove yourself. He is enough, and you are enough if you are in him. He says, that's what I want for you. In fact, that then gives us the ability to live the life which is truly life. Mark twelve thirty, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's partially an answer to them thinking, it's really only the spiritual that matters. The body's evil. That's why they were trying to treat their bodies harshly. No, God says, my son came in the flesh. So that we can love him, worship him, enjoy him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. Maybe your next step is to say, Lord, where is it that I am chasing these shadows and I'm incapacitating my ability to love you with all my mind, all my body, all my soul, all my my heart. I want the worship team to come up. We're gonna sing, Behold Him. We've been told to behold him who is the substance. I'm gonna pray as they come. And the invitation is gonna be to behold him. And then as we walk out of here, here, to turn your eyes again and again to him. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace, your mercy. I thank you for your eyes. We're going to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus, but I thank you that your eyes are turned toward us. And I think many of us, because of either a a legalism, toxic way of going through life, or an experience one intimidating us that we just aren't enough. We can tend to think that when we think of you looking at us, that you shake your head, you roll your eyes, that you have a look of disappointment, of sadness, of embarrassment, but that's not it. That, that God, you, when you look at us, you see us clothed in your son if we're in Jesus. Because of that, we are walking in his victory. Because of that, we are complete in him. Reassure every one of us today of your love that was a demonstrated love on that cross through Jesus. It's also a love that invites us each time when we need to, to come, which is often, come before your throne of grace in our time of need. I pray that we'd be more enthralled with Jesus And we'd feel less afraid to see Jesus seeing us because we know that when he looks at us, his compassion is ignited and he moves toward us, not away. And that's a smile of grace and mercy. But Lord, we can then smile at life no matter what's coming our way because our hope is a living hope in him. Receive our praise, bolster our hearts to worship you as we leave in Jesus' name. Would you stand? We're going to sing this. This will be our benediction.